I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. We've taken these weeks of Advent out of a series in Acts that we've been walking through for the last number of months. And we are focused this morning on the birth of Jesus Christ. Seems fitting, right? I'm going to begin reading in a moment, and I'm almost of of absolute 100% certainty that these words will be familiar to you. You will understand the story. You could recreate it. Depending, actually, not even depending on artistic level, uh, the worst Pictionary players among us could draw the scene that we're about to read. You, you understand it. And when I say that these are familiar words, I, I want us to hear a couple of things. Uh, one is I think the reason we love Christmas so much is because whether we like tradition or not, Christmas has a familiar ring to it often. And familiar can be great. Familiar like the smell of Grandma's house. Familiar like, like the feel of your sheets. Familiar like the breakfast cereal you eat every day. And that's, that could be a good thing and a comforting thing. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that familiar can also have a tinge of danger to it. Is that, is that fair to say? You can become so familiar with something, you skate through, and it just becomes this rote, underneath, subconscious thing. I went to a high school that was 20 minutes away from my small town. We had to drive into the big city. I'll mention that later. It's like, ooh, Grand Forks, 50,000 people. So we'd drive in, and I had a very early class. Uh, My senior year was 7.30 in the morning, AP calculus, which was like the dumbest thing I've ever done in my whole life. There were numerous mornings. I got to tell you, I was so familiar with that drive. Have you ever had this instance where I, I sort of came to, and I was at my school, and I thought, like, did I just discover teleportation? Did I just like, did I just, did that happen? It can become so familiar. And honestly, that is a terrifying feeling. It's a terrifying feeling to have something so significant skate by. I was driving on an interstate, 70 miles an hour, you know, 2,000 pound. Well, actually, I had a little Toyota Tercel that was terrible. It was like a 300 pound car. It was uh, and you hurtled down for 20 minutes on these roads, right? And the fact that I didn't, I, I didn't remember getting there. I just completely went through the motions. That ought to terrify us. And I want to tell you that as a church, we cannot settle for mere tradition of just going through the motions this week. We cannot. Your tinsel can be perfectly in place, have the best-selling garland. You can have an amazing meal. You can have family members come and make, and you can, you can even get to next-level small talk with them. And think like I didn't die of awkwardness. This is amazing, right? And none of it is enough. None of it is enough unless we get to the point where we meet the Jesus of the manger and then we erupt in song. And that's what we're going to find from this passage this morning. It's familiar, but let's not let that breed contempt. We're praying that the Spirit of God would move so that this tale, this story becomes more than just, it's really fun to celebrate. It becomes something you cling to. This is life. This is life. That's the hope. I want to read the tale first. There's a story of blessing, and then there's a song of blessing. So a story of blessing and then a song of blessing. This is the 26th verse of Luke chapter 1. There should be a Bible in front of you. If you need one, take it with you. This is how Luke records the birth of Jesus Christ. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pause there and pray. Father, we've come once again to your word. We've come once again to this season of the year, to Christmas. And that means that rightly we have come face to face with the reality that you sent your own son. He was sent from heaven. He set aside the glory of your presence to rescue us. And we pray that this tale, this familiar story that has been so embedded, so embodied in popular culture, in religious culture, in family traditions, we pray that you would make these words, this story alive. More than that, that we would meet the living Jesus of Christmas. We bring nothing but emptiness here. We've not come because we have it figured out. We come in, in meekness and in need. So Holy Spirit, please, please be present. Pour out your fullness on us. We pray that you would take from Jesus and give to us. Comforter, do what it is that you do. Bring to our remembrance all things. And God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Soften any hardness of heart, the distractions, the, the fatigue of this season. And I pray that over the next few moments, that you would move us. You'd move us from tra- just the mere tradition. You'd move us from just a mere tale of the baby being born. You'd move us to song. Move us to where Mary goes in song. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to walk through the tale of blessing, this particular story. 
And then in a while, we're going to continue on and we're going to get to Mary's song. I can't say that enough. There are many who will go through the motions this week and they will encounter the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, but they never get to song. And until you've been rescued, until you see your life and your hope and your destiny wrapped up in the birth of the Son of God, then you're never going to be moved to a song. No one can sing redemption songs until they've encountered their lostness. So I'm praying for a good thing. I hope you see it as a loving thing. I'm praying that you feel so destitute and so lost that Jesus means everything to you in these coming days. It's been said by a pastor before, cheer up, you're worse off than you thought, right? That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping this week everyone realizes I'm worse off than I thought. You know why? Because in the moment of destitution, we also realize that we're more loved and more embraced. There is a miraculous birth. Jesus came to rescue people who are worse off than they thought. That's what we're praying for. Let me walk through this story. You've seen it before, right? Can you picture it? It's hard to even picture, and we've done a great job trying to find a picture. And in fact, uh, people say that they've excavated some of the, the Middle East and found amazing pictures and very much clarity of what the nativity scene looked like. They found it in colors and hieroglyphics, and it was, uh, I don't know, you guys, you guys heard, heard seen this? It was in a cave somewhere, I think. It's amazing. Um, no, actually, this was, uh, this was from just the other night on Friday night. If you were here last week, you know that you probably saw it out there. There's again tonight. They do a living nativity here with goats and donkeys and stuff. And uh, so this is just four, I think, of like an eight-person cast of that Four Oaks put together. And I just want to say thanks to everyone who did that. It was a treat. My heart like soared just coming and seeing um, this sort of thing. So you see the kitchens there is Mary and Joseph and Lafitte's. And uh, there's a better picture that Trey wouldn't let us use of him like caressing a goat uh, as a wise man. As he, he was a wise man longing for the life of a shepherd. The simple life is what he was. But so we do everything we can to picture this scene, right? We do everything we can. We just did a live, there's a live nativity that Open Bible Church we lease from invited our people to come to. And we try and get pe- people back into the story. And that's, that's my goal. That's my hope. And as we read it, it would freshen up in our minds and we'd get back in the story. So it opens in the sixth month. And we find out later in the narrative, right, that the sixth month probably refers to the pregnancy of Elizabeth. This is miracle number one that, as Zechariah so tactfully and diplomatically put it last week, his wife of advancing years, the barren one, was pregnant. This is a big deal. It's a big enough deal that our text opens, the narrative of the birth of Jesus opens with her in her sixth month of pregnancy. The angel Gabriel is sent back. Remember, he was the one that was near the altar when the incense was burning. And I'm not sure exactly what Gabriel did, but he like, had a great year. Right? This is a banner year for angels. right? Everybody's like recounting the year in their Christmas card. Gabriel, you know, is just writing like, well, I foretold the birth of John the Baptist. And then six months later, I got to go back again, right? I don't know what he was doing in the meantime. Maybe angels have like a great sabbatical after they have to go and invade and bring good news. But Gabriel gets the call again to go down and to tell this young girl, Mary, that she's going to have a child. And as God is apt to do, he ups, he ups the ante. If it wasn't a miraculous story enough that a barren old woman was going to give birth, now he comes to someone of completely different estate in life, a humble estate, as Mary might say in her own words, and this young woman is going to give birth. I want to note right from the start that Mary is not of means. 
She is not like Zechariah's wife, who was from a very influential family. Do you recall she was from the house of Aaron, a very holy, priestly line? There's not influence with Mary. She is a completely unsuspecting, insignificant, from a place, a city, it says, of Galilee named Nazareth. We find out and learn later in the New Testament that this is not an uppity place. She is not, come, she is not just come from touring her Ivy League school choices. She has not said like, well, Harvard sounds nice, right? She is from a place that is very rural. And when I think of Mary, I actually think of a, a story from when I was in high school. And I know that in a moment, I'm going to sort of like, I'm going to actually say to you that my friends had a phrase for teasing people who were from rural areas. And I get the fact that I, Anyway, I'm just, I just want to admit the irony. But when I, was, uh, when I was going to high school, we were in the big city. The second most popular, populous city in the state has 50,000 people. And I would drive in and go to high school in this town. And so our basketball team, we had a good program. And like I was a sophomore, they won the state title. And I was like the practice squad guy. And so we'd go to, and then all my friends, basketball was our life. We'd travel to these tournaments and we, became, we came to find out there was a way to tell the kids who were from programs that we call, that were known as Class B. They were the, the more rural of the rural state in North Dakota, right? And of course, because this is what you do, you compare yourself and you have to find something to say. The people from these schools, every single time, we'd go out of the court and we'd know immediately who we were playing because they all wore black socks. I have no idea why. It was like the thing to do. Every basketball school in Class B wore black socks. And so what used to be sort of a put down where you'd say to someone, if something was kind of unsophisticated and kind of unnuanced and just kind of like, just like duct taped together, we'd say that's so Class B. It became known as, in my circle of friends, that's totally black socks, right? Like you, somebody would wear like a camouflage jacket to, to school or something, We'd be like, whoa, black socks. What are, you, what are you doing, right? So this was just the, the cruelty of our high school life, right? And I know that doesn't make any sense. But what I'm telling you, when I read about Mary, the idea here is she was, she was black socks. She was not from an uppity place. She had no influence. She did not have a line of wealth that would have said, oh, yes, exactly. The Son of God should come through her. And more than that, I think that her response... Her response is intriguing. Her response is probably one that we ought to take more stock in. She says, I don't know what to make of this. An angel has come. I think this should astound us more, and it would get us a lot further down the road of worship in Christmas if we thought like she did. You know, it's not a given that God was going to come with blessing. You do realize that, right? Can you imagine working at a job? Maybe there's a massive hierarchy there's a boss who has all authority and all power. And for the last 50 years, there's a trail of judgment. There's been silence for a long, long, long time. And then the boss shows up at work one day. Do you immediately assume when the person with all authority, when a voice comes from on high, do you immediately assume, oh yeah, I've been killing it down here. This is, he's going to give me a prize, a plaque, a raise, a bonus. No, right? Mary had every reason to believe, like, uh-oh, God's come. There's been 400 years of silence. Do you remember the last words, the promise of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament? He says, repent, basically, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Curse. That's the last words of the Old Testament. 
And so the fact that we look back through the lens of Jesus Christ, blessing us and realize that God has our good in mind, it skews the fact that Mary would have said, like, I don't know what God is up to. Just the fact that God invaded earth, yes, it's miraculous, yes, it's amazing, but it does not necessitate that he's coming with blessing. There are at least, there's numerous miracles in here, but the, not the least miracle is the fact that he comes with grace. God comes in blessing. And that astounds Mary. She doesn't know what to do with that. And I think that we would go a lot further. Do you realize that God had absolutely no obligation to come and to bring blessing? Have you come to grips with that? Do you know what the worst kind of pugnant smell is in the nostrils of God? The proud entitlement of humans who say, God, it's about time you blessed. It's about time you came. That kind of thinking will rob you of Christmas faster than anything else. You will miss worship if you don't say to yourself, Jesus came and it's all grace. Jesus came and it's all mercy. God has come in judgment before. Just the fact that God shows up and says, I'm going to be coming, there's going to be my son will be born, didn't necessarily mean good news. And we need to wrestle with that. We really, really do. We need to actually be grateful and say to God, maybe even utter this week, God, thank you that when you came, you did not come in judgment, but you came speaking a word of blessing. Gabriel came and said, you have found favor. And this really becomes the dominant theme of the whole passage, this whole section. That's why I use the word blessing twice. There's a tale of blessing and then a song of blessing, right? There's at least three different words that this particular passage in the New Testament uses for the kind of grace that Mary is given. The first one, O favored one, that Gabriel says to her, and then later, don't be troubled, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God, is the New Testament word charis. It's almost always, always, always defined as grace in the New Testament. And you know the, the definition of grace, right? It starts with a word that should sort of make us stop and pause and think, un merited. Grace is unmerited favor. We do not deserve the forgiveness that Jesus came to bring. And Mary knew that. That's why Gabriel said, you have found grace. Another word that shows up as the blessing of, of Mary is when Elizabeth says to her, blessed are you among women, in verse 42, and blessed is the fruit of your worm. Your worm. <laughs> the fruit of your worm. So, <laughs> hard to transition out of that. That word comes from, that, that's the idea behind eulogy. You know the word, you know, eulogy? You stand and you speak blessing, you speak well of someone in remembrance of them. This is the blessing that Mary receives that people would be able to look and think on her, that God would speak well of her. Do you know what an amazing thing it is that you have hope to one day stand before God and have God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Does it astound you that in Jesus Christ, God will speak well of you? There is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be spoken well of is an unspeakable blessing. 
Admit it. All of you crave attention. All of you crave blessing. You want the praise of the people around you. It drives so many aspects of your life. To them. Some of us, including myself, have to repent of this. We long for blessing. And in Jesus Christ, because of this tale of blessing, Mary is not the only one. She's not the first. She will not be the last of whom God looks down and speaks blessing, speaks in praise of. Again, let me tell you something. If you cannot find the humility to wonder that God might speak well of you, then you have missed the point of Christmas. The last word that's used commonly, at least in this text, Mary herself uses it in verse 48. When we get to the song, you'll see it. Is makarios. This word for happiness is probably the best way to translate it. When Gabriel comes to bring a word to Mary, he comes and he says, happiness, blessedness. And we know that if you turn a few pages just to the right in Luke or go back to Matthew, when Jesus starts his public ministry, the same miracle of blessedness and happiness is spoken. You remember Jesus? He goes off in the wilderness. He totally just tussles with the devil. He's all like, no, I win. That kind of thing. That's a paraphrase. That's my version. So, like, I win, right? He goes and he calls his disciples, and he stands up in the first recorded prophetic ministry of Jesus. And I want you to see this against the backdrop of silence for 400 years, of sin, of rebellion. Is there a whiny his, more whiny history of people in Israel? Anybody? You read the Old Testament? This is not a good story. Nothing commends happiness or blessing or grace. And I know we always give Israel a bad rap, like, oh, they were so whiny. And then, like, right now you'll go out and you'll be like, I'm only getting 3G. My Wi-Fi is bad. You know what I mean? Like, we're whiny too. We're entitled. We're whiny. We're just as bad. We would be just like them. But Jesus stands before. Do you picture it? 400 years of silence. Why has God come? And Jesus stands before the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount, and he opens his mouth, and he says what? Blessed. Happiness. We celebrate Christmas because Christmas is a tale of God intervening into human history with joy for our good, happiness, blessing. That's why we drink eggnog. That's terrible. No, we don't. Um, We baste hams. We don't do that either. So happiness is the word that's used of Mary. This whole thing is a tale of blessing. I want to make a few comments about the sort of elephant in the room at this point. We know that Jesus has come in blessing. We know that she is not, she is not from means, although she is very, very clearly. You'll see Luke makes great, take great pains to connect her to the Old Testament lineage. Her husband is of the house of David. Jesus will be given the throne of David. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever and ever. Matthew, if you look at his birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1, starts with an amazingly long genealogy, right? You start reading and you think to yourself, like, this guy, it's like your, it's like your weird uncle who loves, like, genotree.com, right? Anybody? Someone has a genealogy nerd in their family. My dad is that. Somehow, he connects me to these things all the time. I get more updates on genotree about a long-lost relative than my own kids from school. Like, I really believe that. And I don't know how he does it. I will find like a secret email that I don't want any spam for whatsoever. I just press enter like, yes, it's safe. First one in the box. You have a new cousin in Phoenix. Genotree.com. I don't know how he does it. But the genealogy is important, right? The genealogy is important because Jesus was to come from, he was promised from the line of David. 
So all these, all these, these things are in place. But standing right in front of us, we have the basic, fundamental, foundational stumbling block for a lot of people, and that's this. That at, at the, the underlying core of the story of Christianity, we have a virgin birth. From what I hear, that's rare in the history of the world. I'm no medical doctor. Um, can I, I, can, I could say that, though, right? This doesn't happen. This is a miracle of the sort of kind of supernatural, kind of like, oh, wow, you've just gone straight mythology on me here. And this is a massive stumbling block for many, many people. There are Christians who take great pains, whole commentaries written, to describe how this is a mythological addition later on that Matthew and Luke, where incidentally this is the only place the virgin birth is mentioned, Paul doesn't go there, Peter doesn't go there, the other two Gospels don't mention it. There are people who take great pains to erase this out of the narrative and say this cannot be the case. You may be struggling with doubts about this kind of thing right here this morning. If you have conversations with people this week, you could have, there are people, I've had conversations with them, who will go out of their way to describe how much they respect and honor and love Christians and the story and it's all that. Just don't tell me about that weird, supernatural, miraculous stuff. You don't really believe that, do you? I want to just comment a couple of, of things about this particular, this particular virgin birth so that it might be of help to you. One is I want to note the fact that the virgin birth is not the dominant theme of the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. If someone comes to you and says, I have a real problem with the supernatural, and I'm just not so sure about the virgin birth, even this week, do not let that discourage you. Paul managed to be pretty successful in evangelism by saying to people, let me invite you to meet this Jesus who, can, who forgives sins and rose again for new life. There's much to commend Jesus without stumbling over this. So if someone comes to you and says, like, oh, I'm a scientist, I'm a realist, I just don't know, this is hard for me, don't let it discourage you. I think you can press on. I also want to mention to you, though, that for some people, because of the background, because of the way they approach things like the Word of God, they simply, will, they, they simply have no category for something like what we just read. You must... Beg God by the work of His Holy Spirit to create an entire new category in people's minds to confront something like this. For Christians, it's no problem. Because why? Because we believe that God is not, it's not, we are not living in a world of deism where God just like pulled a string and let the earth in motion and He's removed from it. We believe in a God who's present and active and powerful and who does miraculous things on the regular. That's who we believe in. So we read a narrative like this and we say, yes, of course God can do this. Right? Of course God can do this. Let me make a couple of uh, other comments. One of the things that's brought up, Luke doesn't mention it, but Isaiah 7.14 becomes becomes sort of an issue for us. Matthew makes a big deal about this prophecy. And you may have heard it before, but I want you to look back at Isaiah 7.14. It helps us to think about this particular narrative. Matthew goes so far as to say, this birth fulfilled, fulfilled prophecy. And this is the verse that he's speaking of. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now let me give you the major, the major rebuttal that people have to this particular verse being used by Matthew and in Isaiah. People will go a long way to say that linguistically the word for virgin here could just simply mean young woman, right? It could just mean young woman, and there's evidence in some places in Greek that that's what it is. And so Luke and Matthew were maybe a little mistaken, and Isaiah certainly was not talking about a a young woman who had never known a man. So we don't need to get involved in all this miraculous nonsense. You'll hear this kind of discussion. I just want to say one thing to that particular comment, a rebuttal. The first is, unless you feel the need to remove the miraculous from the text of the Bible, then that that argument really holds almost zero water at all. The other thing I want to say about it is that when the Septuagint, which is a fancy kind of way to say the Old Testament in Greek, say the Old Testament in Greek, the word for it comes from this, this group of 72 scholars who were commissioned and were amazing Hebrew geniuses, but also spoke Greek. And they went and they translated all of the Old Testament into Greek. This happened 200 years before Jesus was born. 200 years before Jesus was born. And they come to this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And I don't know if you can... This is easy to think about yourself as a second century B.C. Hebrew scholar who also speaks Greek, right? Easy. So just imagine you're there and you're a part of this, co- this council and you need to choose the Greek word to describe what Isaiah is prophesying about. Now there's a whole range of words that you can choose, one of, word, one of which is just kind of the neutral word that just means young woman-ish and just leave it at that. This group of men who 200 years before the birth of Jesus transcribed the Old Testament, chose the Greek word for virgin. The one that meant very distinctly and definitively had not known a man. They believed that in the text of Isaiah, they didn't know the fullness of it, but who did know the fullness of it? Peter tells us that at this point, the angels don't even know exactly what the plan of redemption is. So of course, they didn't know the fullness. It wasn't like Israel was waiting around saying like, here's what we need. We need an unsuspecting virgin girl from Nazareth to give birth. And that would be the case, right? But just because they didn't know the fullness doesn't mean that when they looked at Isaiah 7, they said to themselves, God is going to do something miraculous and unique, and it will involve a virgin girl for at least 200 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And I think this helps us. We don't need proof. We can never scientifically, definitively prove what happened 2,000 years ago in this particular sense. But there's no reason for us to go back and to deconstruct this particular narrative. Suffice it to say that God is working miraculously for the good of his people. One last comment. That passage from Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord will do a sign for you. He will work a sign for you. What kind of sign would it be if it just happened so happened that it was not a virgin girl, it was just a young woman? Whoa. A girl gave birth, right? Like this is not a, this is not a miracle. You guys want to go? The Lord will prepare a sign for us. I have a bus outside. We'll go to TMH. I'm pretty sure it won't take too long for us to find a young woman giving birth, right? For it to be a sign, for it to be a miraculous thing, it needs to be the exact question that Mary asked Gabriel: How will this be? I am. I have never known a man. One of the last few comments on on Mary, at least in this section, 
Do you ever notice how when people meet angels, they always seem like a sixth grade boy at the dance talking to the hottest girl there? You ever notice that? They always ask the most obnoxious questions, the most obvious thing. They're stumbling over their words. Like Gabriel comes to Mary and says, says, you're going to be with child, right? And she says back to him, how will that be? I've never known a man, right? What, do you, what did she think was going to happen? You think Gabriel was just about to like proclaim, then he was like, oh man, we never thought of that. We ne- Mary, I cannot believe, wow, this is embarrassing. Like, Mary, I'm so sorry. Uh, let me just go check with, uh, right? She says the most obvious question. Remember Zechariah? Listen, I know you're an angel and you're standing before me and promising me this thing, but don't you know my wife is advanced in years? You know, I mean, have you seen her, right? Every single kind. Now, you might be able to find there might be like a really suave response to an angel in the Bible. I don't know. But my guess is that this experience is so astounding that everyone is sort of just like, oh, oh, they don't know what to say. And very quickly, the Spirit of God moves Mary from not knowing what to say, from wondering to amazing humility, belief, and submission. We'll see that in a few moments. I want to just mention as, uh, as well that uh, Elizabeth, who greets Mary, seems to have a supernatural sort of uh, understanding, a, complete, a completely otherworldly awareness of what's happening when Mary comes. She goes to visit her. It goes beyond the joy of just two pregnant women talking about what it's like, Right? I mean, that's, that's already kind of spirited. Have expecting moms in the same room. And, you know what I mean? I eat pickles a lot. How about you? Not that, you know, that's spirited already. This is a different kind of thing. Elizabeth has a supernatural, and it says very specifically that the Holy Spirit is given to her and to the child. And I just want to pause here for a moment. Here's my, my goal in this tale of blessing. I want it every single step of the way for your wonder at this story to increase. For you to say to yourself, that is... It's a miraculous thing. I want you to note how much God initiates this entire thing. He doesn't ask anyone's permission. The Holy Spirit is completely sovereign. He gets sent down to Elizabeth. The baby is not inside the the womb. John the Baptist in utero is not confessing his sins and like saying, please, Holy Spirit, come. No, God is, is working sovereignly on the behalf of his people to bless them. And I don't think this is some sort of proof text. I don't think you can make a whole argument over the way that God always works. But I do know that there's a lot of people who hesitate to give the Holy Spirit the kind of release and freedom that he needs, I believe, to, to overcome obstacles, to break in hardness of hearts, and actually to convert and to bring people to praise without them even seeking it at times. The Holy Spirit here is working in a very unique way, in a very free way. God looked down upon Mary, he looked at Elizabeth, and he said, I'm going to work redemption for my people. Holy Spirit, go. He didn't ask permission. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis, who said of his conversion that he was the most, not only the most unlikely, but he was the most unhappy convert in all of England. That God dragged him to himself. I don't intend to make some sort of uh, apologetic for predestination or election or anything those here. I just want to say to you, I think our wonder should be increased at the way that God can work to bring about our good. This is not Elizabeth's merit. There's a baby in her womb who is filled with the Holy Spirit and doing calisthenics, right? 
This is astounding. God works for the redemption of his people. And at least in this case, and at least in this case, he works completely by grace, sovereignly. The response of Mary is, of course, commendable. I don't want to take great pains to talk about all the ways that Mary has been treated over the centuries, right? We know that there is stories of the Immaculate Conception, which doesn't have to do with Jesus. That's a doctrine that says that Mary was conceived also sinlessly, that she maintained virgin status all the rest of her life. It's anyone who is uh, who believes those kind of things, I, I mean, I think there's a conversation there to be had. I think you ought to dive into the words of the Bible and say, what does it say about her? But I don't want to go so far down the, nah-uh, Mary wasn't that path, to miss the fact that she is very much commendable in this text. We ought to call her name blessed. We read her story here with joy. She was faced with an unbelievably hard circumstance and she responded with humility, with submission. She says in verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. There's a bunch of us who would refrain that and amen that all the way to heaven. Like, oh yeah, so long as we're reading like the blessing passages, right? Like, open the storehouse of heaven, God. Yes, let it rain. Let it be to me according to your word. Far fewer of us would hear the difficult task to bear the shame of an unexpected pregnancy out of wedlock for a young girl, and not only that, to bear the responsibility that this shameful, unexpected, out-of-wedlock birth was going to bear the sins of the world, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. She could have just been shy and said, like, "Uh, could you just get someone else to put them in the limelight? Maybe not me. When the Word of God asks you something that is difficult and hard and goes against every grain of your instinct, if the Spirit gives you grace to say, let it be to me, done to me according to your Word, then you'll know that you're encountering the God of the Bible. If your entire Christian experience, you never once are asked to do something that goes against every instinct of your heart, if you never once are, caught, or, are brought to a point of submission and obedience where you say, God, let it be done unto me according to your word, not my ideas, not the things that sound brilliant, not the things that give me esteem, not the things that bring praise on my life, if you never once are encountering those moments, you probably should reconsider and say, am I actually encountering the God of Scripture? Someone maybe would say that it could be not God that you're worshiping and following, but yourself. And so Mary, in this instance, she did not ask for any of this. This is a hard thing. And she responds in humility and in submission, and it's beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous of her. Let me read her song. This is a song of belief. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed the Lord would bring about what he promised. Mary's hard obedience Her submission, her humility is an outflow of her belief. This song is what belief looks like. If you've been moved by Jesus in the manger, if you've come to grips with Christmas, you'll be moved to song. This is what belief looks like. Verse 46 of Luke 1. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. We don't know if that three months means that Mary waited for John the Baptist to be born. She's not mentioned in the next section. She's not mentioned when John the Baptist is born. But she does pen this beautiful song. The Bible's full of songs. It's one of the reasons I love the text of Scripture. Songs are a powerful thing. They connect our emotion with truth in a way that very few other things do. Song erupts out of people who have been moved There's a connection between the things you speak and the things that you know to be true, and that's what happens with Mary. She's moved to belief, and so she sings. She sings a song of redemption, like Moses sang in Exodus 15. If you need devotional fodder this week, something to sort of dive into, you could look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. This song mirrors with with amazing clarity. It sort of mirrors and parallels Hannah's song when she presents Samuel to the Lord. These songs are powerful. And I think one of the main gifts of a song is to describe and to tell us what we should learn about who God is. We're going to hear a song from these words in in just a few moments, but I want to go through a list of things that we learn of God. This is an okay question for you to ask anytime you read the Bible. What does it tell me about God? This book is to communicate who Jesus is, the exact imprint of God's nature. Here's some things that we learn. God is, and I've already said it, he is sovereign. Mary commits herself to magnifying the Lord, the ruler, the king of her life. She says, my spirit rejoices in God. She gives God his rightful place as creator, as other. She is coming underneath in submission because God is king. He's sovereign. We also know that he is Savior. He has done good things. He's forgiving her sins. She shows her need for a Savior. It's one way to counter the idea that Mary remained sinless. She's in need of a Savior just as much as everyone else. In fact, I believe that there's few things that can move you to sing like this apart from saying, my sins have been forgiven. So God is sovereign. He's a Savior. This is probably my favorite one in all of this song comes from verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. You know what this teaches us about God? God is attentive. He's attentive. This is what hope looks like, to serve and to be loved by an attentive God. Isn't that the definition of hopelessness? God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God doesn't know, he's turned his ear away from me. And the opposite of that moves Mary to worship. This is the opposite. This is the God you serve. When you cry, he answers. When you move, he watches. We have an attentive God, not a deity who is far off, who has remained impersonal and removed. God is attentive. He has looked on her estate. If you are searching for hope in your life, there are things that are difficult and you're in grief and you have questions, you don't know where to turn, you can get a lot of mileage out of the hope of this one thought. That God loves me, he is for me, and he sees. God is attentive, and Mary rejoices in that. More than that, he's mighty. It's one thing to have someone who sees but can't do anything about it, 
right? I see you. I just can't do anything about it. I see you dying of your appendix bursting. I wish I were a surgeon, right? I can't do anything about it. But in addition to being perfectly sovereign, having all the authority, and also being totally attentive, you know what else God is? He's mighty. He can get things done. He who is mighty has done great things for me, Mary says. This is a great combination to have. Wouldn't it be terrible if God were only mighty but not good, nor didn't have any authority? That would be bad. What if God were perfectly in authority and perfectly mighty, but he was a tyrant and terrible and evil and mean? That would be bad. The picture that Mary is describing for us is a God who is perfectly in charge, who is perfectly attentive, perfectly good. He's also mighty. He can accomplish things. The next one, holy is his name. We learn that God is holy in this song. I think this speaks back to the virgin birth as well. I don't know all the complexities of it, but if you want the key that might unlock why Jesus was born of a virgin, I think holiness is as good a key as we're going to get until God reveals all to us. Do you remember what Gabriel said? What Gabriel said to Mary as she is trying to figure out what's happening here? He says in verse 35, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And what does he say? Therefore... In other words, this is why I think that holiness is a key to the virgin birth. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holiness. There's something about the fact that Jesus did not inherit a corrupt nature that allows for God's holiness to be on display and for Jesus to be a perfect sacrifice for sin. And Mary sees the holiness of God and rejoices in it. Holiness is a two-edged sword. It makes us this week be confronted with the fact, you know why Jesus was born? You ready for this? This is a terrible Hallmark card. This is like dumped Hallmark card ideas.com. Merry Christmas. Jesus was born. Open the inside cover. Because God hates your sin. But it's true, right? Is it not true? Do you think Jesus would have willfully said like, yeah, yeah, God, I'll leave the presence of heaven and our perfect relationship forever and I'll, I'll go down there and take on human flesh and be derided and mocked and shamed and put to death on a cross. I'll take on every single temptation and suffer in every way just as they are. And you know what moved to this moment? You know what moved Christmas? God is holy and he hates sin. He needed a way to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Holiness moved Christmas forward. God's perfection, his goodness. And you can trust that God is working mighty things for you in a good way because he is holy. Here's just a list. You can find them yourself and the rest of it if you want. God is to be feared. He's to be feared. We learned that from the song. Mary rejoices in it. He is strong. He opposes the proud but exalts the humble. Let me tell you something. You want to run as far away from pride this week as you possibly can. Nothing will ruin your Christmas more. God opposes the proud. He scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty. He leaves the rich empty. I think there's a message about a baby in a manger in there somewhere. I think that would preach, but the point is don't be proud. God exalts the humble. God satisfies. You know my favorite verse probably in the whole Bible? It's from Psalm 145. Psalm 145 says that God opens his hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. God opens his hand and he satisfies. Verse 53, Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things. This ought to make you want to call people to Jesus. 
You can call people to Jesus. Why? Because he satisfies. Don't bother me with all this religious talk. I'm sorry, I'll stop bothering you with the only thing that will satisfy your soul for all eternity. God satisfies. There's nothing to apologize. We're calling people to their joy because God fills the hungry with good things. This is what Mary's singing about. She's moved with wonder. We know, of course, that God helps. He keeps his promises. There's a million things here to meditate on. I don't know exactly what's been stirred for you. My hope is that you're moved to worship this week. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Uh, Tim is going to sing through a song. Uh, It's a new song. You probably, I don't know if you'll know it or not. It's called He Who is Mighty. I just want to encourage you to read through and think about this narrative. Maybe even read Luke 1 again, 46 through 56, as the song is being sung. I want to encourage you. The words will be up there. You don't have to sing it. You probably won't know it. You just stay right where you're seated and just read through. Let's make a commitment in our hearts that this week we're not going to miss, we're not going to miss a song of blessing from us. We don't want to just go through the motions. I want to pray for us. Let's pray.